Once I know I'm in the presence of a good storyteller, I'm not trying to do their work for them. I'm not trying to suspend my disbelief, but I just kind of let go and realize I can let go and enjoy the story. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Amy Beckley writes essays and short memoirs for The Cultivating Project and on her own blog, A Homeward Life. She's also the co-director of the Arts Guild of the Anselm Society. I caught up with Amy to talk about the discipline of noticing small splendors, the way that art reminds the recipient that they mean something to someone, and the way that time and distance unpack our memories to show us meaning that was there all along. Amy Beckley, I'm so glad that you made time to be on the Habit Podcast today. Thank you. It's a real joy for me to be here. I, uh, I, it, it, the, the catalyst for me, you know, finally making get in touch is I love your article in Cultivating Magazine um, so much. The that's called "A Child in a Fine China Shop." Oh wow! Just want to Thank talk you. to you about that and and some other things. Um, so, uh, you, one thing you talk about in that article is how much, um, uh, Beatrix Potter meant to you. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. tell me about that. What, what, what about Beatrix Potter it was important to you and is important to you? Sure. I think it was the experience of actually encountering her books and where I got to encounter them, which was the back of a of a China, fine China outlet um, <laughs> while I was running errands with my mother. Um, but as far as I can recall, this was a repeated visit sort of thing. So in the yeah. back of this particular China shop, um, they had 12 of the Beatrix Potter books and I would get to sit there while my mother browsed through the store. <laughs> and um, and I think it was really the illustrations that drew me in yeah. and the context in which I found them. Cause you know, you had to pass between all these well, it was, it was a pretty spacious shop, actually, but you had to pass by all of these delicate figurines and depictions <laughs> of, you know, um, I think it was like puppies and dancing couples and, <laughs> and you know, English roses to get there. Um, yeah. And so just sitting there and having the opportunity to read those books there, um, I think it just gave me an idea of a sanctuary of beauty mm. um, and a place where I could sit in quiet in a pretty dim room and just enjoy these works for what they were. So yeah. I didn't know a lot about Beatrix Potter at the time. I just knew that there were these nifty little books that fit in my hands that I could just sit there and read and nobody seemed to actually mind me being there either. Yeah. So um, yeah, that was my first exposure to her. And were you, it. were you attentive to uh, nature and natural beauty when you were little? I mean, I think so. It's hard not to be because I grew up in um, Blacksburg, Virginia and Boone, North Carolina up until mm -hmm. that point in my life. And so the Blue Ridge Parkway being outside, um, my family would go for a lot of walks. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, there was a lot of nature to be enjoyed. Yeah. There. I was just yeah. asking because, you know, of course, for Beatrix Potter, she was so mm -hmm. attentive to the natural, natural world. Yes. And I was wondering if, 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 you know, reading her, you know, is this a, a little girl seeing a, a kindred spirit or? I think so. And the fact that, um, the fact that she depicted it in watercolor and I still don't really know what it is that really draws me 
technically, I guess, to her paintings, but the colors that she chose and the delicateness of it all, mm-hmm. I think that gave me an opportunity to maybe look at the things around me in a different way too. Mm-hmm. So I was just kind of captivate, captivated by how cohesive that was too, because it wasn't just one book, it was 12 of them. Yeah. And she had numerous characters, but they all were kind of portrayed in the same delightful way. Yeah. 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 Well, um, she... It, I don't know why I, for some reason, associate Beatrix Potter with China. Maybe it's the colors in those, you know, China, the the porcelain product. Right, right. Um, <laughs> but maybe it's those, maybe it's the colors of those, those pictures. But I, I've always somehow associated Beatrix Potter with China. Or, or maybe, maybe there were some, were there some Beatrix Potter plates that I would have seen when I was little? Have, have you ever seen those? Uh, I have recently, like in the last 10 years or so, I think. I don't know if something went public domain, but I uh-huh. feel like I've seen just chains and lines of Peter Rabbit everywhere. <laughs> yeah, right. So maybe, yeah. yeah. Um, well, and I love the way you talk about China in this in this story. You know that the idea of your mother interesting. So you tell the story of, of a little um, of a, a little grade school classroom tea party. Mm-hmm that yes. captured your imagination when you were little. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I love the way you talk about the, the trust and the hospitality and the, uh, I'm not sure, maybe you can fill in the other uh, abstract nouns that, um, that your mother demonstrated in letting these little juveniles handle her China. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I think the event itself was a surprise for all of us. Mm-hmm. And I could be wrong. I think I heard it referred to as the first annual tea party. So as far as I can recall, it was the first time that this teacher had done this with her class. And I didn't know, you know, having walked through that fine china shop before and, you know, gawked at all of these teacups, I didn't know, I don't think, that my mother had bought these teacups. (laughs) And so they showed up at this party and then they also became a part of my childhood over time. And it was it's still kind of a wonder to me that, yeah, she was very free with, you know, um, letting me pull it out for special occasions or when I was sick or my brother uh-huh. and I, although I think my brother liked drinking out of the Pyrex measuring cup more. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she, she was just very good at that. She was very good at helping us to um, feel like there was something special and, and granting us permission to use the special things. Yeah. 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 Well, just even that idea of these, these kids that you knew every day that you, you know, uh, stood in line for the water fountain with and that sort of thing. And, and now y'all come into this room and everything's transformed by ritual, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, Yes, there was definitely. And you see each other different from in this little moment of formality. Mm -hmm. Cause I don't think we had ever seen each other in a more formal setting uh-huh. Up until that point, and just having that atmosphere transformed, it makes you look at people in a different way. And that's not something that I would ever have known to put into words, but I got to experience it. Yeah, and that was pretty amazing. Yeah, mm-hmm. you. I've been listening to this this podcast called Lord of Spirits. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but but it's these Eastern Orthodox priests who talk about you know these the seen and the unseen world one of their things is they don't like to talk about the natural and the supernatural they're like it's all the world and some of it's some mm. of we can see and some we can't and they say that that there are really four ways that we interact with 
reality and especially unseen reality. Um, mm -hmm. And that's language, which is very important to, to you and to me, mm -hmm. um, and art and music and ritual. Um, and while their, their particular take on ritual, I'm not quite as a Protestant, I'm not quite ready for yet, but, but the, uh, but, um, but then I, th I think about the, the ritual involved in your little story of, of the children who were dignified and ennobled by the fact that these grownups sat them down and said, now we're going to mind our manners and, yeah. and you can hold this little cup that's going to break if you drop it. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, some something about that feels like and you know to to borrow from to paraphrase you know C.S. Lewis this, the the idea that you know putting on your tuxedo or, or your or your ball gown is not a matter of showing off it's almost a matter of disappearing into this larger thing mm. than you are mm -hmm. um, which seems relevant to, to what you were were talking about in in your piece yeah absolutely and it's funny because I don't think anybody had to take us aside and explain, now we are shifting into an event that is different from your normal school classes, but there was something inherent about the setting and even just the feel of the teacup that's going to be different from, you know, like a school cafeteria cup <laughs> or a mug that you use at home that made us a little bit more aware that we were part of the fabric of something different at that point. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So this is a podcast about writing, <laughs> as you know, uh, or about the creative process um, any of that shape the way you think about creativity, about writing, about the, the work that, that you do as a writer? The relationship between seen and unseen? Well, I, maybe, or, or you know, the hospitality that's involved in, in all this. And mm -hmm. you, you have a lot of interesting, you know, when you talk about hospitality, about, about the way we welcome other people in. I mean, you know, the, the, um, I'm, you have some, do you have some specific things to say on that subject? Um, if I, oh no. Okay. Well, maybe this, you can tell me how relevant this is to, to that part of the conversation, but in, you talk about this idea, you know, a husband, I'm going to read, if you don't mind, a husband sure. picks wild asters on his way home from work for his sleep deprived wife, mm -hmm. a teacher and a group of parents conspire to host a special event at school. An artist writes a charming story of a little rabbit and irate gardener to a sick child. Such gifts can leave an impact far surpassing the guess of the giver. They mm -hmm. bide their time until they are called to mind in times of isolation and difficulty and of an utter poverty of spirit. Consider this, they quietly suggest. Why would someone, why would anyone go to such trouble? Can it be that you mean something to someone? Mm -hmm. And I love that way of thinking about the work of a writer as, as honoring the reader and saying, I'm going to this trouble because it is trouble right, to, mm -hmm. to write. I'm going to this trouble because you mean something, dear reader, and you're worth this trouble. Hmm. I love that. I, I was thinking of, I think, all of that more in the context of beauty and the things that we do because we love people and how beauty almost organically becomes involved in anything that we do to provide for another uh -huh. person. But now mm -hmm. that you said that, um, something I've been thinking about lately is um, Anthony Doerr and how he talks about providing the right detail in the right places, I think is how he puts it in mm -hmm. Four Seasons in Rome. 
And I love that because I see him doing it so well. Like one of the mm-hmm. things that I love about his writing is that the pacing to me is just right. And he, he, he will give you an image to linger on and it will linger, you know, for a few sentences and then he'll give you something else. And, yeah. um, and I think the way that he puts it is that a writer is manufacturing a dream of sorts for the reader. And so mm-hmm. it's not, you know, um, something that you're doing to process your own thoughts. Like there's journal writing for that, he says, mm. but when you, when you are manufacturing this dream for a reader, you are trying to provide images and a setting and an atmosphere that are as cohesive and vibrant and clear as you can make them. And then when you go back over your draft and you're um, seeing how it all ties together, I think the way that he puts it is you're, he, he goes back over his drafts and then he tests each sentence to see if there's a fracture in the dream. Mm. So he's like testing the scenes of this thing. And I love that image yeah. because I think that is what the writers I love do so well for the reader. They, they provide this world or they provide this voice or tone that you can kind of become immersed in. And if they do it really well, like in the hands of a really good filmmaker or a musician or a writer, I feel like there's a release that happens in the first couple minutes where once I know I'm in the presence of a good storyteller, I'm not trying to do their work for them. I'm not trying to suspend my disbelief, but I just kind of let go and realize I can let go and enjoy the story. I don't know if that yeah. all makes sense, but no, it, it, I, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, and that we talk about the willing suspension of disbelief, but that's really only, you only willingly suspend your disbelief at the beginning. And then, you, and then you do it. I mean, uh, it's not that you do it unwillingly, you do it without thinking about it one way or another un- mm-hmm. until something breaks in. Right. Uh, yeah. So this idea of um, spending that on the part of spending that kind of time and craft on the part of the writer for the reader. Yeah, I guess that is what happens. Then the reader is able to return to it and say, this is a place where I encountered something, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this means something to me. Um, hopefully that in the grand scheme of things, I as a writer would love for the reader to know this all kind of cumulatively, hopefully helps you realize that you mean something to the ultimate someone. Yeah. And that, um, and all of these things that are brought to your notice, whether it's something natural um, that happens outside or something that happens within literature, these are things that are being dropped into your view to help you encounter and to know that you are loved. Yeah. 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 And that the, the, at some point in that essay, you talk about prodigality, just, just this, this almost irresponsible, right? It's, it's, there's something irresponsible about putting yes. own China in a little juvenile's hand. Yes. You know? Yes. Just That's like, not the responsible you know, thing to do. Yeah, right. And like, even I love that Beatrix Potter's Peter Rabbit story started with her just writing it in one little letter to a child. Yeah. It, and I think she talks about that, that yes, she did it for him, but she also did it for her own pleasure. Like this was a drawing that she wanted to make and a story that she wanted to make. And then all kind of combined together to create this thing that has now, you know, blessed or, you know, been a joy for children through generations. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. It's cool that that happened. And, and so in writing, on the one hand, we do shoot for efficiency, right? We don't, and one, one thing that can break the continuous dream that you mentioned earlier is um, too much extra, you know, extra words or, you know, or 
ideas that, that don't feel like they belong. And yet it's also our job to be prodigal and inefficient, right? Yes. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the dilemma of the writer. I've mm-hmm. got to be efficient about the right things and prodigal about some other things. Yes. And I don't know. I feel like I'm constantly learning the balance between those two. Mm-hmm. And so when I, it's usually when I encounter a piece of writing that somebody else has done where they go off on something that I would never go off on, like the description of a scene or the story about a pet or something like that. I just kind of, I think sometimes because they catch me so off guard, those are the ones that I end up falling more deeply in love with because I'm just so impressed that somebody had the courage to do that. And then it it gives me courage to, you know, try something else out in a different direction. Yeah. 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 I I hear (laughs) you. And then sometimes I, uh, get self-indulgent, right? <laughs> Same here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I'm going to, uh, I want to bring your attention to, to, well, okay. Here's, here's that, that, uh, passage I was talking about. What I saw in my mother and Beatrix Potter was a willingness to love prodigally, to place bone China in the hands of elementary school students, to squander detailed line drawings on a letter that a single child would receive. That's what you said, mm-hmm. Amy. Since then, I've witnessed gardeners who have plucked their flower beds clean in order to give a bouquet away. I've met hostesses who have intentionally dropped plates in their kitchens to set clumsy guests at ease. Mm -hmm. Um, And you compare that to the breaking of the alabaster flask of nard, Mm -hmm. um, which Judas was not too excited about. Right. But Jesus said, yeah, this is the way. I love that he said that. I'm so grateful. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, this, this, it, you know, the creative, the offering of the offerings of, of creative work, you know, they are, they're not necessary except that they are, but, but I mean, the, the, the whole, the whole spirit of it is here's this thing that's extraneous. I know you don't, I know that you can, this isn't going to help you, make a living necessarily, but it might help you make a, a life. Mm-hmm. And, I love that. Uh, and that invitation. Um, I, I, I just, I love the way you talk about, um, you know, beauty and, and creativity in those terms. And of course, nature is, is also highly inefficient. Yeah. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. <laughs> so many, I mean, how many, how many acorns does a, does an oak tree make, you know, that, that yes. don't turn into, to oak trees, like almost all of them don't turn into oak mm-hmm. trees. <laughs> yeah. And that, that, that prodigality, you know, think how many, how many animals um, get their, uh, their nourishment from yes. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, you talk about Beatrix Potter being into mushrooms, which is just funny. That's just, that's a, right? it's about as, about as lowly a, a, a life form as you could uh, hope for. Yes but, yes, but if you get on the low level and you look at it in detail, you see how intricate and frilly and amazing yeah. that they are. Yeah. It is incredible, yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen, you know, like these recent documentaries about about fungus and what they mean to the forest and, and the ways that they serve as the the uh, the neural pathways between trees. Have you ever seen this stuff? No. You that need to, sounds you need really to look, cool. It's really interesting that trees like can exchange nutrients with one another, even other species of trees, yeah. thanks to the to the the these basically neural networks that are the fungus. That's amazing. Yeah, 
I sat yeah. down with with one of my kids to watch one of these documentaries. It was so interesting. And then they then they went off on you know psychedelic drugs and how they you know, how wonderful those were. So I, I didn't quite know what to do with that. But yeah, these are the, <laughs> yeah. the risks you take. You know, when yes. You documentary education. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's great. Um, well, the there's a, there's this great passage in, in the uh, in the the China shop uh, essay um, you're you've gone from talking about um, Beatrix Potter noticing to your own habit of noticing and I love the way you put it I'm older now but as a but still a girl child sometimes when it comes to looking stooping hardly breathing as I stop and notice small splendors that cross my path it does not come as easily as it once did opening a door and coming in from a world overheated by contention and a mind fevered with worst case scenarios is often an act of the will. Mm-hmm. Um, you have more to say about that? Yeah. Um, so with Beatrix Potter, I, I think one of the amazing things to me, because I've only recently learned more about her life and her other interests and Um, And I love that she spent, I think, the latter part of her life purchasing farms and Mm. land around the Lake Country or the Lake District and then turning that, planning to turn it over to the National Trust. Oh, I didn't know Um, that. Yeah, it's it's amazing what she did. When did she, like, what were her dates? When when did she die? Do you know? I'm not sure. Was it still, like, did she live into the 20th century? I think, so she's. So Peter Rabbit was born 1893. Oh, oh. Okay. Um, and so, yes, I she, was a little she definitely back did that. live into the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No problem. I'm not that great with dates. Of course, I didn't set myself up <laughs> as an expert on Beatrice Potter either, like you did. So. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yes, I know. I was asking for it. <laughs> um, yeah, but I was going to say about um, the contrast. So, one of the things that's amazing to me is that when I look back on um, encountering Beatrix Potter, like I didn't know any of her interest in mycology or mm-hmm. even that she had made a practice of noticing things in her life, but that came through her work to me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, and it's a simple story. All of them are pretty simple stories, um, but it was the depth of her noticing that came through without any didacticism or, oh, you wow. know, um, or any other sort of hints, like it just came through her art. And when I think about that, I think about the things that the unseen things that writers and artists convey through their work mm-hmm. um, that are just part of the lives that they live. And so you rub off on the things that you create. And there are some mm-hmm. things I think that are conveyed through that, even without you meaning to, or yeah. intentionally putting it in. But um, no, as I've, as I've gotten older, I wonder sometimes if the trade-off of learning to notice things is that you, 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 kind of can apply that skill to other areas of your life. So if you have a sick child and an active imagination, <laughs> then, you know, you can go lots of fun places in your mind as yeah, to right. where you all are going to be at three o'clock in the morning and whether you need to go to the emergency room or yeah, that kind of yeah. thing. And I think I, so I don't know if those are two sides of the same coin, but I know that definitely growing older has put me of course, more in touch with the harsher realities of life. And so, um, it is a discipline, I think, to notice the right things yeah. and to dwell on the right things yes. and to choose to draw from those. And I know that a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists have a lot to say about building 
um, trenches with your thoughts. Mm. And if you travel the same track for a long time, you just kind of, it's easier to slip into that same groove. And mm. it takes a lot more effort to build new tracks yeah. and healthier ones. And so that is something that um, I'm constantly learning, I think. Yeah. Um, would you say that your habits as a writer are, uh, you know, do they uh, deepen those better tracks um, in your life? Or is it, I'm at my desk and I'm trying to, you know, I've got these, these writerly habits, but then the rest of my life I'm worried about, you know, the, uh, what is it? The, what do you call it? The uh, supply chain. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I, I can tell when I've worked myself into a rut writing wise, because Mm -hmm. I noticed that my thoughts just start spiraling and I'm coming back around to the same thing, but in a more dour way each time. (laughs) And so um, usually the thing that helps me to break out of that is to be out in community. And that's hard for me to say as an introvert, because I don't think I willingly put myself in the way of a lot of conversations, but there are meetings that are scheduled and people that I do talk to regularly. And when I've been doing that for a while, I'll sometimes show up at my desk and feel healthier Mm. and feel like I have um, more of a will to, to pursue certain writing projects or things like that. So, yeah. yeah. Don't you have some, don't you have some good ruts though? I mean, ruts can be good, right? So I try to keep those intact (laughs) (laughs) and try to build bridges out of the other ones. Yeah. Hopefully going out and seeing people doesn't bust up all your, your good ruts too. No, so the good conversations are the ones that really fortify those, I think. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um I I know we've been talking about your your China shop essay, but another one of your essays that really caught my imagination um was the one about uh so you spent sort of your junior high years, it looks like, in Korea. Mm-hmm. Sixth to eleventh grade. Six to okay, most so of high school than, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. wow. Um and so, um, what is that? Oh, the inheritance of stories is the name of, of the essay that, that I'm talking about, where you uh, revisit mentally um, Korea. I guess it was Seoul was where you, Seoul, Korea was where you were. Uh, yes, I'm trying to think if the last place where we lived would still be classified as Seoul. I I think we ended up big, north of you, Seoul, but uh-huh. pretty much Seoul. big city. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Seoul is like bigger than New York City, right? I think so. It felt that way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and and so sounds like maybe that wasn't. Forgive me if I'm if I'm putting words in your mouth or getting it wrong. So like maybe that wasn't the happiest uh, time of your life. You know, like unlike for most of us, when thirteen, fourteen year old is is just a, a right? uninterrupted bliss. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but as you revisited and we're just talking about mentally revisiting, right? You didn't actually go back to Korea or did you? No, I haven't been back since third year of college. Okay. Mm-hmm. So as an adult, you knew a little bit more what to do with those, with those stories. And, and I just want to talk about that because I think it's so interesting and so relevant to the way we think about our own lives. Yeah. And as we try to turn our, you know, as we try to make sense of our lives as stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I know like when I teach, I've taught college creative writing a lot of, you know, many semesters and, 
and I teach adults creative writing and adults feel like they've, you know, they've had more life and they're ready to, they're ready to, to tell some of these stories, but the things they told have already happened to the 18 year olds in creative writing class. They just don't know what to do with them yet. Yeah. So it's not even, you know, when I think about adults have more life under their belt, they're not necessarily writing about what's happened to them in the last 10 years. They're still writing about their childhood, but, but having more life under their belt, they know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. So that seems to be what happened to you with regard to your years in Korea. Yeah. And I, I can sympathize with your students because I think when I was in college talking to a mentor, she was asking me if I would ever write anything like a memoir. And I think I said something like, I, I don't know. I don't feel that I've lived enough life no. yet, or I haven't no. had enough suffering mm-hmm. in my life yet. And, um, and she nodded and I think she seemed to understand that. But at the same time, um, I think when I was about 11 or 12, um, I, I was thinking about how maybe I was going through something hard and feeling how hard it was. And I had this idea that when I grew up, I might turn around and look at the things that I was going through at that age Mm -hmm. and think, Oh, that was nothing, you know, Mm -hmm. compared to what I'm going through now. But at that time, I remember making a promise to myself that if I ever grew up and I looked back that I would never belittle my 11 or 12 year old self for feeling the way that I felt because, Mm. and I think the way that I put it to myself was in terms of percentages. I said, it may be that I encounter something really hard and really, and have to endure through something later on. But what I'm going through right now to my 11 year old self is, is 100% of my is taking up 100% of my capacity for fear and grief. And that's, that's as real as it can get. Like, that's not going to be something that I can't relate to when I'm older. And so of course the irony now is that, you know, over two decades later, I turn around and I'm like, Oh, those weren't, those weren't small things. Those were things that it was absolutely valid to be afraid or sad about. So it would be a poverty as an adult, not to be able to see that, that you're, your child self really was feeling what, you know, we, we belittle children's feelings or even, you know, or talk about puppy love, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, um, and yet, as you said, if, 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 if it's filling your whole frame, it's filling your whole frame. If that's, mm-hmm. if that's all you've got is that frame. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Um, can you put a finger on what, like, what or how, or what was the process by which you could, you could look back on your youth and, and make sense of it? I mean, is, is there, can you even put language to, to what, what that process was like? A little bit. I think, um, I think, I, I think the trajectory of the essay is, um, I, yeah, I think the way that I went about writing the essay was, unbeknownst to me, and I think I talk about maybe like a coffee table book. Yeah, it's like it was a coffee table book. Yeah, yeah, I I think, um, and this kind of underscores, I think, the kinds of things that we need community for, because I'm learning that I need others to teach me by example, to see beauty the way they see it. And so it was maybe having just that, even just having that coffee table book for a few weeks, 
and looking at it through the eyes of somebody else who was saying, look at what is beautiful about the landscape of Korea. And I don't even remember reading the text, but just (laughs) the fact that it was portrayed the way that it was, I think made me a little bit more willing to revisit the things that I remembered firsthand. Yeah. But also I was probably reading the accounts of people who were talking about things from their childhoods that maybe weren't the easiest, but they were able to kind of view them with, um, grace. Yeah. And I think that's that's what I, I learned from other writers and what I learned from being in community with other people. And I think that's what I love about it. Like I I don't think there's anything wrong with telling a childhood memory when you're 20 and when you're 30, when you're 40 and you're 50, and you're probably going to get a different story yeah. or a different angle every time. And that's kind of like, I don't know, maybe the an analogy could be you you use like a like a camera, you know, the kind with the light bulbs that exploded <laughs> and then you <laughs> use um, a film camera and then a digital camera to photograph the same scene. And there's still truth in that image. You know, the way that you're yeah. telling it, the elements are maybe the same, but what you're taught to see and the way that you're framing it is going to be different. Yeah. Um, but I think what I love learning from other people is um, how I've been noticing, especially with my parents, like the older they get, the things that they talk about as the distance increases, I feel like they're able to view it with more grace. Mm. So their speech is seasoned with it and they don't speak of things that hurt them with as bitter of an edge as they used to, I think, yeah. or could. Yeah. And I want to learn from that. Like it, I think that teaches me something about eternity and about how, I guess how Paul can call things light momentary afflictions mm-hmm. compared to the weight of glory and having that experience of being able to distance to experience a distance from past memories so that the hurt fades a bit and I can see and really feel how it would be possible for God to work all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Yeah. Um, having that experience gives me hope for, you know, what's what things are going to look like that are going on in my life now that they may look like I'm botching the grammar of this <laughs> sentence, but, but you know how the, those things may look in, in the future or from eternity. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I, I love so that. Yeah, yeah. I love that perspective of grace. One thing that I'm finding as I get older is stories that of my youth mm-hmm. that I told for laughs when mm-hmm. I was, you know, in my 20s or my 30s, as I get older, I still see the same stories as funny, but I see them as more than funny sometimes. Mm. You know, like, matter of fact, one of the first things I wrote for The Rabbit Room was a story about the the, the time when I was uh, in second grade and I wrote a little um, get well card for, uh-huh. a, for a friend who's been in the hospital and uh, drew a picture, wrote a little poem, and uh, and the mother of, of the kid was so, you know, thrilled with it that she gave me a tube of vampire blood. Oh, like it was the first time I ever got paid for writing. Okay. And they, they had a they had a um, they had a convenience store and she kind of looked around. And said, oh, it's, you know, it's it's, you know, October. I'm sure this kid would like some vampire. Blood. Oh, my word. That's a funny yeah. story, right? That is funny, yeah. And but the only and and I I, I kind of felt like this story might mean something, but all I can get is it's funny. <laughs> and then, yeah. so as I said, that was like I don't know, two thousand eight that I wrote that story for the for the rabbit room, mm. and kind of left it 
just at, you know, I think the story might mean something, but it's funny. And then, you know, just played it for last. And then mm-hmm. in the meantime, I had this, you know, just brutal bout with um, writer's block. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, Andrew Peterson and I were talking about, you know, about writer's block. And he said, yeah, you know, it's, it's writing is like, you know, and he was quoting somebody else. You, you open a vein and you bleed on the page. Writing is mm-hmm. hard. You just open a vein and you, and you bleed. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And then I was like, aha, now I know what the vampire blood story was about. Oh, it was this woman said, here, kid, you're going to need this, you know, still, <laughs> still kind of funny, but you know, but it just felt like it, it's, it's really, uh, I think sometimes we think you write something when you, you, you write something and it's written. Yeah. And I'm finding that a lot of stories I, I wrote when I was younger didn't stay written, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, now that I'm, you know, older i'm i'm seeing more in those stories than i did before so it's almost like my capacity for seeing is is greater yeah i love that i I also love that your stories are initially told for laughs because i feel like maybe it's my melancholy personality but i feel like my stories are initially just tragic (laughs) (laughs) and then i have to have the distance of about a decade to be like oh well here are the lighter parts and here are the things that are to appreciate that exist to appreciate yeah that you can appreciate but Actually, that happened to this essay, too, because um, I first wrote an Inheritance of Stories back in 2018, I think. And then I revised it earlier this year or last year or, you know, recently mm-hmm. um, because I had always felt that it was incomplete. But when I read it through again, a different memory came back and I ended up mm-hmm. changing the ending uh-huh. to that. Yeah. I think I only read the the more recent version, so I might have to go back and... Oh, that's good. <laughs> see, what you, see what you did before. Um, well, great. Well, we're we're kind of coming to the end of our allotted time, but I've got to ask you, who are the writers who make you want to write? Sure. You um, can say Beatrice Potter if you want to. <laughs> she makes me want to paint um, uh, in an amateur way. Do you also um, paint, Amy? I do not. I, okay. I've just started doing a nature study watercolor course with my really? girls, but I don't really outside of that. So I'm learning. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, um, writers who make me want to write. I, I think I've mentioned Anthony Doerr. Um, I would say He's linear. A lot lately, by the way, in in these has he really? episodes. I can't remember who, but I think you're the third person in the last three months, probably. Who's oh mentioned. wow, yeah, yeah. Um, linear Ivester. Mm-hmm. Um, who to me kind of embodies like. Mm, the care and the gumption of a modern day Lucy Maud Montgomery. <laughs> um, I love her for that. Um, Leslie Bustard, I yeah. think for the way that she looks for beauty and it's a, it's a faithful practice and it's a constant mm. one. And I think that's something that I really need to learn from. Um, Malcolm Guite, Alan Jacobs, um, yeah. anybody who can take academic writing or an academic background yeah. or body of research and then, put it into really engaging mm-hmm. writing. I love that. Um, whenever yeah. I come across that, and that might still be because I'm detoxing a little bit from um, academic writing, I uh-huh. guess. Um, and my girls, I think they're, yeah. they're eight and 11, but when they finish breakfast and run upstairs because they just had an idea for a short story or <laughs> when they come in from the garden looking for a piece of notebook paper because there's a poem that they saw and they're convinced <laughs> it has to be written. Um, I think that tends to remind me that there is an exhilaration at the heart of writing and it doesn't mm. have to be this, you know, um, 
drudgery, you know, exercise and drudgery that I sometimes set myself up for. Mm. So Uh yeah, they inspire me to write. That's great. Well, Amy Beckley, thank you so much for for being here. I, I hope you keep on putting these beautiful essays into the world. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure for me. The Habit Podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To check out more of our podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcast. Our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com slash member. And thanks for listening. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.